You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So, like I said, not, we don't have time for a ton of frills, so let's get right into it. Last week, right, the Ark of the Covenant, um, which signified the presence of the Lord, was brought to the city of David in Jerusalem, right? So the, the Ark of the Covenant, this thing that was a, a, a physical representation of God's presence, at one point was not with God's people, and now it has been returned to God's people, Right? What was lost in the reign of King Saul has been restored now in the reign of King David. And in verse 1 of chapter 7, it tells us that in this moment, now that the ark has returned and the battles have essentially been won, it tells us that God gave David rest from all of his enemies. And a couple of weeks ago, if you'll recall, right, uh, the situation was much darker, right? We had a, a, a divided kingdom. We had a bunch of sort of different tribal leaders all jockeying for power now that Saul had finally passed away. And of course, we also had enemies from outside the camp with the Philistines, right? It was a, it was a, it was a shaky time. Now David has been thrown king and it tells us that God gave David rest from all of his enemies. So all of the things that war makes us desire, right? The hope and the rest that we long for in the midst of conflict, those things have been given now, not only to David, but also to his people. There's a new king and there's a new and bigger kingdom than there had been before. Now, David has a house in Jerusalem and he decides in these first few verses of Chapter 7, he wants to build God a house. He says, okay, I, I live in a house. It seems fair now that God should have a house, right? Up to this point, God's house had been a tent so that it could travel with God's people wherever they went up, right? They were, they were nomadic. And so having a tent, something that could move, was important. But now the kingdom has been established and David has a house that is situated, that's not going anywhere. And so he says, it's time to build God a more permanent home in the midst of the people. And what we come to find out in the first seven verses of of 2 Samuel 7 is that God actually refuses David's offer to build him a house. He says, David says, I'm going to build you a house, God. And God says, hold up. Uh, I've never needed a house. I've never asked for a house. And so you don't need to worry about building me a house. And instead, God says this back to him. In verse 8, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. And here's the key line. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is almost comical in nature, right? In that David says, okay, I've built my house. God, it's time to build your house. And God says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. 
But David already has a house in the physical sense. And so God must mean something different, right? There's something else that God must be alluding to. And what we come to find out shortly hereafter and in the rest of God's words is that God is not talking about David's physical residence. He's talking about his house, his, his line, his dynasty, that God is going to give him a lineage of kings. And he goes on to explain in verse 12 when he says this, When your days are fulfilled, that is David's, when your days are fulfilled and you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. So David, you're not going to build me a house, but someone from your line will. And then he says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now this is key, and if we aren't careful, we'll miss it. Right? God says that David's offspring will be a son to God Himself. And at first glance, that probably doesn't sound all that important. But what we're witnessing here, and the reason that so many people, when they look at this text in particular, say that this is a climactic moment in the Old Testament is because there is a major transition that takes place in those simple words. That this offspring of David would be God's son. You see, up until this point, prior to David, this language of adoption, this language of sonship was primarily used for Israel as a whole. Right In Exodus 4, Moses comes to Pharaoh with this demand. He says, Israel is my son, let him go. So Moses, in speaking God's words, in reference to God's people Israel, says Israel is my son. He's talking about corporate Israel, right? All of them together, my son. So sonship, earlier in Israel's history was exclusively a corporate idea. Belonging to God was like the world's largest and most horrible group project, right? You were not God's son on your own. You were God's son together with all of God's people. All of you together, one son in God's eyes. And so what we see happening throughout the history of Israel is not necessarily that all of Israel goes off the deep end, but significant portions of Israel go off the deep end, and it gets counted to the whole of Israel, right? So like when they're in the desert suffering for their unfaithfulness, when they are in exile suffering for their unfaithfulness, it's not because everyone in Israel individually sinned in ways that were worthy of that punishment, but because a number of them had And it took their corporate identity that God acknowledged and treated them accordingly. And so this is where the shift comes in. You see, sonship will no longer be a corporate identity in God's promise to David. From here on, Sonship, this language of belonging to God as his child, would focus on the house, the line of David. 
So at some point down the line, there will be someone from David's house who God will say of them, this is my son. And he goes on to tell us in verse 14 and onward that Israel's fortunes now would rise and fall or fall on the sin or the righteousness of the son. Now, how do we know that this is a new thing, right? How do we sort of dig out this transition? Well, it happens. We see this happen even, right? We took an an example from Exodus, but this transition clearly happens within Samuel because in 1 Samuel 12, 14, we read this. It says, If you fear the Lord, worship and obey Him, and if you don't rebel against the Lord's commands, then both you and the king who rules over you will follow the Lord your God. So what's Samuel the prophet saying? He's talking to all of the people of Israel and he says, if you corporately behave in a a right and righteous way, then it will go well for you and your king will serve you well. The king's faithfulness depended on the faithfulness of Israel in 1 Samuel 12. The faithfulness of God's people. But in our text today, just a few chapters later in 2 Samuel 7, the king will be disciplined individually and his discipline would encompass the entire nation. So the nation's future now depends on the behavior of the king. Do you see the switch? Right? If the nation behaves, then the king will behave. And here we have the transition. If the king behaves, then it will go well for the nation. Essentially, what God is saying is that there will one day be a leader for God's people that will lead them in righteousness in such a way that they are together made corporately righteous through the king's faithfulness. Right? So instead of the group project now, we get to pick the smartest guy in the room and let him do all the work, which is what happens anyway in most group projects, right? Why is this so huge? Why is this so central? Well, it's pointing forward to a time that we now look back to, right? It's pointing us to the son of David. Which in Acts 13, we're told that when God had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, who? Jesus, as he promised. 2 Samuel 7 also tells us that it's looking forward to one who would be raised. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. What else do we see in 2 Samuel 7? Not only that this this coming king would be the son of David, not only that they would be raised up, but that this coming king would build God's house. So David, you're not going to build my house, but somebody from your line is going to. Well, what does Jesus say in John chapter 2? 
He says this, destroy this temple, the place where God resides, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So 2 Samuel's telling us this story about the son of David who would be raised up and build God's house. And all of this is being alluded to all throughout the New Testament. Right? 2 Samuel 7 also tells us that this coming king would be someone who possesses a throne. Someone who possesses an eternal kingdom. Someone who would be God's very own son. In Luke chapter 1, Mary comes to find out that she's going to have a child. And this is, this is not necessarily good news for Mary because Mary is not yet married, which is a problem in ancient culture. And an angel comes to her and he says these words. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Now get this. He will be great and will be called what? The Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the what? Throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. And of his kingdom there will be what? No end. And so, brothers and sisters, what we clearly begin to see taking shape before us is that this transition that happens in 2 Samuel 7 from the responsibility being on the people of God to behave righteously, transferring to the responsibility to behave righteously being on the king whom God has chosen, paves the way for us for the righteous king, Jesus. Jesus is the king that leads his people righteously forever in such a way that his people are counted righteous through him. Jesus is the king through whom God's people will experience eternal peace, rest from their enemies. So this shift in Samuel is a major transition precisely because it's preparing us for this one who would come. It paves the way for us to be judged based on Jesus' righteousness instead of our corporate unrighteousness. Right, Because at the end of the day, we're not so different from Israel, are we? Typically, we like to read the Old Testament and we laugh at how foolish the Israelites are, right? Well, if God was with us in a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night, it would be easy to believe. If God would provide for me manna from heaven, if God would provide for me water from the rock, then it would be easy not to doubt God. And yet, the reality is that we've been provided water in the living water, Jesus. We've been provided manna from heaven in the broken body of Jesus. We've been provided a pillar of fire by night and smoke by day in the Holy Spirit who goes with us everywhere that we go. We have all of these things and yet we behave just like the Israelites. 
And so the good news, brothers and sisters, this morning is not that we're different from the Israelites. It's that we have the hope that the Israelites looked forward to, which was a king who would lead in such a way that we would be judged based on his righteousness as opposed to our corporate unrighteousness. Now, it's almost silly, I think, to add application to this sermon uh, Quite simply, we should be in awe of God. We should be in awe of His kindness. We should be in awe of His consistency. We should be in awe of His faithfulness to a stubborn people. We should be in awe of His sovereignty to bring about the things that He desires to happen according to His good pleasure and will. We should be humbled by this narrative, this story that He is writing on the very pages of history for us to relish in and rest in this morning as we look at the finished work of Jesus. But there is application to be made here. Especially if we zoom out a little bit and just summarize chapter 7. Right? What happens? Early, early in chapter 7, David is given rest by God. David There's rest. You're not pursued anymore. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to order. It's all good. You've been made king. Your kingdom is established. Your city is growing. Your house has been built. You have rest, David. David, though, like most of us, isn't really comfortable with rest. And he tries to fill that rest with more work by building a house for God. And however well-intentioned, God doesn't need him to build a house. God made David king, so God can take care of his house. He'll figure it out, David. In some ways, before we arrive at this promise that God gives David, God is rebuking him for trying to force something that will happen in God's time, right? And this is ironic because up to this point, throughout the life of David, David has been the model picture for restraint. He refused to take the kingdom from Saul and he waited for God to give it to him. Had two opportunities to kill Saul and take his throne from him. Didn't, chose not to. Waited for God to do what God was going to do. Did everything in his power to restrain himself so that at the end of the day when he came to the throne it would be clear that it was not through his actions or through his strength or through his military prowess but that it was by the work and the grace of God. And yet here he is trying to push through something that God has not asked him to do nor is concerned with him doing. And then God, in His kindness, rather than getting upset with David, He says, "Um, not only do I not need you to do anything, look at all of these things that I'm going to do for you. He makes all of these promises of what He will do for David. And they're great and they're glorious promises about a king who will come and lead the people into righteousness. They're they're great and glorious promises about the fact that someone from his line will reign over an eternal kingdom with an eternal throne that he sits upon and there will be rest in that kingdom from all of that kingdom's enemies. 
established forever. And what's David's response? This is what happens in verse 18, and we didn't read this. It says this, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? What does David do? He sits in the presence of the Lord. Now here's the thing. Again, this is a detail that if we're not careful, we will miss the meaning. In this time, going before the presence of the Lord, meaning where the ark resides, going before the presence of the Lord was one, something that only priests could do, and two, it could only happen so often. But then the third and most important thing is, is this. The, the priests had so many duties to carry out before the presence of, the God, uh, of God that they were never allowed to sit. And so David is doing three things that according to the Mosaic law would have been prohibited. He's entering in to the presence of God apart from a priest and he is sitting down in God's presence. It's a sign of the access that David has now been given to God. And then what does he do? Well, in verse 20, he does what probably all of us should do in light of the work that God has done on our behalf. He says this in verse 20. He, he sits down before the Lord and he prays, and this is what he says. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all of this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And so David enters into God's presence, he sits down, and he worships. David enters into God's presence, he takes a posture of rest, and he worships God for all that God has done. But then there's a shift in David's prayer in verse 26 where it changes from simply worship. And this is what David says. Starting in verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. David got bold real quick. Keep reading. Verse 26, And your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Verse 27, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. And so what does David do? God promises David rest. David shirks at the rest, wants to work, wants to earn before God. God says, I don't need you. I never needed you. 
In fact, I'm going to do all of these things for you. And God, David, David finally says, okay, well then I'll rest. He enters into God's presence. He rests and he worships. But then, what does he do? He commands God. I don't know about you, but it's not, it's not too often that when I think about praying, I think about commanding God to do something knowing how small I am and how great and majestic and glorious and utterly worthy of all that I have He is, I rarely into His presence thinking, you know what, God, I really uh, need to tell you what to do today. And yet David does. Why is that? because of the favor that David has before the Lord. That he can enter into his presence. He can rest there. He can sit and he can worship and he can also make demands. And listen, the the glorious thing that Hebrews tells us is that we now, because of Jesus, have favor with God. And it tells us that because of that favor, we can boldly enter into his throne room. Like, so we can go into the presence of God, right? Just like David. And not only can we enter into the presence of God, but we can speak directly with God. We can worship him. We can magnify him. But listen, here's something that we can also do that I think often we don't because we're afraid of it. We can make demands of God. Now let me be very clear about what I am saying and what I am not saying. We can sue God for grace. That's what David is doing right here. He's suing God for his promises. He's saying, you said you were going to do this and I expect you to do this because you've said you would do it and you should be faithful and you are faithful and you will remain faithful to your promises and so I'm going to call upon you to remain faithful to those promises so again let's be clear we can sue God for his grace when we need it we cannot sue God for a Mercedes but here's the thing what I would hope that we realize from this morning's text is that we can enter into the presence of God and we can make bold requests and we can tell Him that He owes us His grace. Again, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us and because God is going to be faithful to His promises. And listen, one of His promises was that He would complete the good work that He began in us. And so in those moments when we're feeling weak or we're feeling frail or we feel like maybe we're lacking something that God hasn't given to us, we can come before Him and we can say, God, stay true to your promises to me stay true to the fact that you have said in Jesus I have an inheritance that is beyond this world that can't be stolen by thieves can't be eaten by moss cannot be taken from me remind me of that hold me in that give me strength in that you can tell those things to God without fear of being struck down because in Jesus you have favor in his presence And so listen, I don't know about you, Sojourners, but I want my prayers to change. I want our prayers to change. I want our prayers to change, not only with regards to our own individual lives, when we think about 
praying and asking God to be faithful to His promises in us, to change us, to make us different, to help us win that battle over sin, to help make us more like Jesus, to help us evangelize more fruitly, to help us love more fully, to have, right? All of those things. But at the same time, I hope that we'll begin praying bigger prayers together for what God wants to do in our world. Because listen, God has promised God has promised that He will make all things new. God has promised that He's going to draw out for Himself a great multitude of every tongue, tribe, and nation from the planet Earth. That He will be worshipped in literally every language that has ever been known because His glory demands it. And so listen, we can go before Him and we can ask Him to be true to that promise. We can ask Him to be faithful to save people. We can ask Him to be faithful to guide our footsteps. We can ask Him to be faithful to multiply His church. We can ask Him to be faithful to send His presence to us in the Spirit, to sustain us for the difficult days that are ahead. We can ask Him for those things. In fact, we don't even have to ask. We can demand them because He's promised it. Brothers and sisters, that is ridiculous that we can do that. And it's equally ridiculous that we wouldn't. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, that we can enter into your presence. Lord, we can come before your throne of grace. And we will find mercy in our time of need. God, we thank You for the favor that we have in Your presence through Jesus. We thank You, God, that we are judged on His righteous work and not our corporate unrighteousness like we deserve. We thank You, God, that You paved the way for Jesus through David. We thank You, God, that You are operating within our history, that You have come in flesh and blood to make Yourself known. We thank You, God, that we don't have to hide from your presence anymore. And I pray, Father, that you would make us people who are bold. People who are bold enough to come before you and demand that you do what you have promised you would do, not only in us, but in the world around us so that you might be glorified and so that we might experience the joy of the reign and rule of a faithful and glorious king. We can't do that. We can't build you a house. We can't offer anything. But we can sit in your presence and we can boldly ask you to be faithful to what you've said you would do. Lord, thank you for the sign and seal of this promise that you have made with us, God, that um, was sealed in the breaking of bread, in the giving of the cup, God, in the breaking of your body, your son's body, and in the shedding of his blood. Father, I pray that we would come to the table this morning in that hope, in that wonder. And Lord, that as we take the sacrament this morning, you would embolden us to begin asking you for the things that in Jesus and according to your promises, you have said 
you owe us. That access is astonishing. And we're grateful to you for it. Lord, we thank you for all good things. And we pray all of these things in the name of your glorious and wonderful Son, Jesus. Amen.